Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry savannah georgia this is obscure season three wuthering heights i am your host your friend your ear lover your literary mansplainer in chief and georgianologist michael ian black southern gentleman esquire just returned from the eternal city roma roma italia and just i guess some quick thoughts about Rome before we dive into and first of all I, I you know I was sort of half intending to record from Rome just so that I could say from Rome you know but I but I, I, I it, it, just, it just became impossible it was all, it was almost an overwhelming experience I don't know if you've been to Rome but it is without a doubt the single most beautiful city I've been to in my life now, granted, I haven't been all over the world, but I've been to many, many cities, and uh, this one just takes the cake. My God, it is overwhelming with beauty. It, I, I mean, it's just suffused with beauty. The light, the architecture, the ruins, the, uh, the bungle bungle ladies, the Vespas, and uh, I just, I couldn't believe it. I don't know what I was expecting, but I couldn't believe it. I'm faltering a little bit to find the words. But when you're walking around and, you know, to your left is a uh, gelateria and to your right is a 2,000-year-old Roman bath or something. And in front of you is a column that dates from whenever. And, and then over there is an obelisk dragged from Egypt after some conquest or another. And then over there is a 14th century church. The mind reels. 
it literally reels. I, I mean, when we, the, our, our first full day there, we did the Colosseum tour, and then we and and uh, the the Roman Forum tour, and we went up to the Emperor Augustus's castle. Castle doesn't even really describe it; it's so enormous. And uh, you just you just can't believe that all these things kind of coexist in the same place, because you're looking at you're looking at literal centuries of human history just sort of jumbled on top of each other, one on top of the other. And, um, you know, it made me feel like I was in a kind of cubist painting of time. It's so overwhelming. Just, you know, the, 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 the history and the technological marvels and the engineering marvels and the artistry, the craftsmanship, the, just the wonder of the place. It, it was just stunning. I did not expect to have an emotional reaction to Rome, but I really did. I mean, just seeing the Colosseum for the first time, I, you know, like I'd, I'd certainly seen it in pictures, you know? I'd, I'd certainly see George Papard, you know, driving around the thing in Roman Holiday. But I was not fully prepared for the size and scope of this place, built 2,000 years ago for the games, you know. And when you just see it in person and you see the complexity of it and the scale of it, then we went to uh, Pompeii. And I don't know what I was expecting from Pompeii, but not what I found. I did not realize that Pompeii, when you go to visit it, is not sort of a, 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 I don't know, I guess I sort of thought it would be, a, 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 you know, like a tourist attraction sort of thing. That you go and you, you learn about Pompeii and you see some, some, uh, some bodies frozen in time and you see some stuff. I did not realize that Pompeii, when you go there, you're touring a city. The entire uh, city of Pompeii as it was circa AD 92. They've excavated a city frozen in time. Now, clearly, a lot of it is sort of in disrepair. I mean, it is in disrepair. It was covered in volcanic ash. But you, you, clear, you see the city. You're wandering the city streets. You see graffiti on the walls. You're seeing uh, shops that were open and homes. And it's overwhelming. You know, you're, you're just sort of wandering around a city as it was nearly 2,000 years ago. It blew my mind. The whole, the, we went to the Vatican, just the Vatican museums, and uh, spent an afternoon there. That blew my mind. When you just see the treasure, and I don't mean it from, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the Catholic Church here for just accumulating all this shit, but one of the reasons I don't like the uh, Lord of the Rings movies is because, you know, you got this dragon that you're trying to kill and it's just it just lives and it's just sleeping on treasure. And you're thinking, well, what the hell does it care about treasure? Well, when you go to the Vatican, you're like, oh, I get it. Treasure is fucking awesome. Treasure is amazing. And here displayed for all to see are treasures of the last 20 centuries, 21 centuries, you know, just array, just sort of out there, each one incredible on its own. And when sort of all 
amass together another overwhelming afternoon. As you're just walking through and seeing these incredible um, busts of Romans and um, uh, various tapestries and antiquities and paintings and just stuff gathered from all over the world and accumulated and hoarded by the Catholic Church. And my reaction should be, well, those fuck those fuckers for hoarding all this shit. But as I was going through it, I was like, oh, this is cool. Thank God they did this. You know, they're keeping all this stuff for us. And when I say us, I mean, you, I got the feeling being in Rome of a deeper connection to humanity itself. Because when you're confronted with that amount of history and that and all the like masterpieces and treasures and and craftsmanship and all that you think wow i belong to a pretty cool group of mammals that does this shit you know that just fashions uh representations of our inner selves from marble well that's a cool thing to do just chipping away at marble to depict the height of human experience or whatever material it is. But it, it just, I don't know, it just kind of blew my mind. Here I am rambling and rambling and rambling. And we're nine minutes in. I haven't even got to the book yet. I should. Um, but, you know, and the food, of course, was, I don't want to say the food was a disappointment. It wasn't a disappointment at all. The food was amazing. But I guess I was expecting it to be revelatory in a way that it wasn't. You know, the food in America, if you look for it, has gotten so good that when you go anywhere else in the world, you're like, oh yeah, this is also good food, you know? I mean, there's such good food here in America now. Probably there wasn't, you know, 50 years ago, but any city you go to now, if you want to find good food, you can. So when you go to Italy and, you're, and you think your mind is going to be blown because you've never had flavors like this, no, you have. Certain things, you know, are better, certain things are worse, but the food is very good. Anyway, so that's why I didn't record. I was just kind of like, I was just overwhelmed. And by, and by the end of every day, I, you know, I, my head would hit the pillow and I was just, it was just lights out, kid, because I could not, I, my brain needed to power down for a little bit just to process. And I, I suspect I will be processing it for a while. I mean, the wife and I were thinking, oh, maybe we should just move to Italy, you know, give it a year, go, go, go live in Italy. I mean, the place is fantastic. So maybe we'll do that. Who knows? Um, Wuthering Heights, back on home soil for this fine American novel. And Isabel has come to visit. She's a runaway from Wuthering Heights. Thank goodness. We're all happy about that. She's come to visit Nellie. She's, she's fleeing and she's describing Heathcliff. That was the last time we met. She says, I can recollect how I loved him. I can dimly imagine that I could still be loving him. But then she says, no, I couldn't because eventually his monstrous personality would have revealed itself. And so, she, you know, she's shitting on her husband and we can't really blame her. But geez, lady, you know, you married him. Don't talk ill of your, of your betrothed. I'm kidding, of course. He's terrible. All right, so let's pick it up. So she's just talked about what a shitheel Heathcliff is. And so let's pick it up here. Chapter 17, Wuthering Heights. And Nellie goes, hush, hush. 
He's a human being, I said. Be more charitable. There are worse men than he is yet. He's not a human being, she retorted, and he has no claim on my charity. I gave him my heart, and he took and pinched it to death and flung it back to me. People feel with their hearts, Ellen, and since he has destroyed mine, I have not power to feel for him, and I would not, though he groaned from this to his dying day and wept tears of blood for Catherine. No, indeed, indeed I wouldn't. And here Isabella began to cry, but immediately, dashing the water from her lashes, she recommenced. You asked, what has driven me to flight at last? I was compelled to attempt it, because I had succeeded in rousing his rage a pitch above his malignity. Pulling out the nerves with red-hot pincers requires more coolness than knocking on the head. Huh. Wait, let me just think about that for a second. Pulling out the nerves with red-hot pincers requires more coolness than knocking on the head. Yes, I suppose that's true. It's more surgical. If you're, if you're ripping out the nerves, you need a little bit of coolness to you. All right. He was worked up to forget the fiendish prudence he had boasted of and proceeded to murderous violence. I experienced pleasure in being able to exasperate him. The sense of pleasure woke my instinct of self-preservation, so I fairly broke free. And if ever I come into his hands again, he is welcome to a signal revenge. Well, we don't know what she did, but it sounds very impressive. You know, because Heathcliff, the last time we saw the two of them interacting, he could not have cared less about her. You know, she was no more to him than a, than a, you know, I don't know, a grasshopper just sort of springing around the room, annoying at best, you know, chirping like a grasshopper, but no more important to him than that. And she has since, since managed to rouse his ire to the point where if he were to catch her, she says she would deserve whatever retribution she got. Well, we don't know what the hell happened. All right, well, she's going to keep talking. Yesterday, you know, Mr. Earnshaw should have been at the funeral. He kept himself sober for the purpose, tolerably sober, not going to bed mad at six o'clock and getting up drunk at 12. This is, uh, what's his face, uh, uh, Hinton Earnshaw. Consequently, he rose in suicidal low spirits as fit for the church as for a dance, and instead he sat down by the fire and swallowed gin or brandy by tumberfuls. Heathcliff, I shudder to name him, has been a stranger in the house from last Sunday till today. Whether the angels have fed him or his kin beneath, I cannot tell, but he has not eaten a meal with us for nearly a week. He's just come home at dawn and gone upstairs to his chamber, locking himself in, as if anybody dreamt of coveting his company. There he has continued, praying like a Methodist. Only the deity he implored is senseless dust and ashes. And God, when addressed, was curiously confounded with his own black father. So, he, you know, it sounds like he's, he's sort of uh, chanting dark incantations, perhaps, to Satan himself. Heathcliff has become a Satanist. He is begging the dark father to hurl thunderbolts down on all of creation. To make the streets uh, run with blood. That's, that's how I like to picture Heathcliff in this moment. He truly is just a dickhead. After concluding these precious orisons, and they lasted generally till he grew hoarse and his voice was strangled in his throat, 
he would be off again, always straight down to the Grange. I wonder Edgar did not send for a constable and give him into custody. For me, grieved as I was about Catherine, it was impossible to avoid regarding this season of deliverance from degrading oppression as a holiday. Right. So, for her, the fact that Heathcliff is in and out of the house and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, beseeching the Dark Lord to rain terror down on all of creation, for her, she's like, this is great. You know, he's ignoring me. I can just, you know, I can, I can just hang out here. I love it. Mmm. Little tea. Ah, ah, ah. Delicious. All right. I chattered on too long about Rome. Uh, we're at break time, so I'll take a little break. And return here in a moment on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, listening to Isabel Earnshaw, or, or, well, former Earnshaw, now Heathcliff, uh, her flight from Wuthering Heights and, and the circumstances that led to it. I recovered spirits sufficient to hear Joseph's eternal lectures without weeping, and to move up and down the house, less with the foot of a frightened thief than formerly. You wouldn't think that I should cry at anything Joseph could say, but he and Hareton are detestable companions. I'd rather sit with Hindley and hear his awful talk than with to little Meister and his staunch supporter, that odious old man. When Heathcliff is in, I'm often obliged to seek the kitchen in their society or starve among the damp, uninhabited chambers. When he is not, as was the case this week, I establish a table and chair at one corner of the house fire and never mind how Mr. Earnshaw may occupy himself and he does not interfere with my arrangements. He is quieter now than he used to be, if no one provokes him, more sullen and depressed, and less furious. Joseph affirms he's sure he's an altered man, that the Lord has touched his heart, and he is saved so as by fire. 
I'm puzzled to detect signs of the favorable change, but it is not my business. Yesterday evening, I sat in my nook, reading some old books till late on towards twelve. It seemed so dismal to go upstairs with the wild snow blowing outside, and my thoughts continually reverting to the kirkyard and the new-made grave. I dared hardly lift my eyes from the page before me. That melancholy scene so instantly usurped its place. Hindley sat opposite, his head leant on his hand, perhaps meditating on the same subject. He had ceased drinking at a point below irrationality, and had neither stirred nor spoken during two or three hours. There was no sound through the house, but the moaning wind which shook the windows every now and then, the faint crackling of the coals, and the click of my snuffers as I removed at intervals the long wick of the candle. Hareton and Joseph were probably fast asleep in bed. It was very, very sad. And while I read, I sighed, for it seemed as if all joy had vanished from the world, never to be restored. The doleful silence. So, okay, just as a, as an aside, here we are now hearing Isabel's tale related to Nellie, related to Lockwood, related to us. Just weird. Just weird. This, this old contrivance of novels. Um, it's just funny, you know, just to think that Mrs. Dean, in telling the story, remembered verbatim what Isabella had said. Verbatim. Every word. And Lockwood had, had, uh, had, is recollecting to us verbatim what Mrs. Dean says. These people have extraordinary memories. The doleful silence was broken at length by the sound of the kitchen latch. Heathcliff had returned from his watch earlier than usual, owing, I suppose, to the sudden storm. That entrance was fastened, and we heard him coming round to get in by the other. I rose with an irrepressible expression of what I felt on my lips, which induced my companion, who'd been staring towards the door, to turn and look at me. I'll keep him out five minutes, he exclaimed. You won't object? No, you may keep him out the whole night for me, I answered. Do, put the key in the lock and draw the bolts. Wait, what? <laughs> You're locking him out of the house? All right. Earnshaw accomplished this ere his guest reached the front. He then came and brought his chair to the other side of my table, leaning over it and searching in my eyes, a sympathy with the burning hate that gleamed from his as he both looked and felt like an assassin. He couldn't exactly find that, but he discovered enough to encourage him to speak. You and I, he said. And so now uh, we've got another person speaking at length have each a great debt to settle with the man out yonder. If we were neither of us cowards, we might combine to discharge it. Are you as soft as your brother? Are you willing to endure to the last and not once attempt a repayment? I'm weary of enduring now, I replied, and I'd be glad of a retaliation that wouldn't recoil on myself. But treachery and violence are spears pointed at both ends. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a nice little line there. Uh, you know, say what you want about Emily Bronte, and I've said almost nothing but good things about her. The gal can write, you know. All these folks writing these classics, they can write, you know. Just as all these Roman artisans and craftsmen, they could do what they do. Are we just getting worse as a species? You know, I was thinking about it. 
they, they these colossal Roman baths that were built. Uh, I couldn't tell you where they're they're sort of half in ruins now, but you see them, and it's not what I pictured. I pictured maybe a big building, you know, where there there were these baths. I did not picture a monumental sized baths. It's sort of hard to describe how large this facility was in Rome. It just stretches and stretches and stretches. And you think, well, I mean, it, it must have housed thousands of people going for a little dip, you know, getting a massage, doing a little, you know, having a spin class or whatever. I mean, you think about, you know, think about the biggest gym you've ever been to and or the biggest, uh, you know, swimming pool you've ever seen, and then multiply that by a hundred. I mean, these things were colossal. These public works, and and decorated and painted and gorgeous, and yes, tended to by slaves. But let's set that aside for the moment. The immensity, the scale of these things, just unbelievable. And why were they there? I mean, I guess they were there to sort of keep the peace, you know. A, a well-bathed populace is a happy populace. The bread and circus deal, hey, that's not a bad deal. You know, give me bread and circus and I'm going to be pretty happy too. I don't need to revolt against the government if you're giving me bread. You know, if you're giving me a nice rub down, presumably with a happy ending, I'm, I'm satisfied, man. I'm going to vote for whoever's going to give me more of that. That's the other thing. It's just, it seems like they placed a premium on beauty. That's the thing that kind of broke my heart a little bit. Nothing was slapdash in in what remains. Like, I don't know what it was like just living day to day. But the amount of care and the wealth and the ornamentation, just so extraordinary. And you think to yourself, well, why don't we place more of a premium on beauty when we construct our lives? and our cities, and our public spaces. Why must everything be about the bottom dollar? I know why, but God, we could take a page from their book. You know, the closest I can think of when I think of, like, parallels is the way Soviets used to build subway stations. You know, they would build these palaces under the ground, these public expressions of beauty. And so your more private life would be a little bit more, what, ascetic, you would have less as a private citizen, but you would have these communal spaces that were beautiful. And I think that was more or less true for the Romans, too, that apparently, you know, if you were just an ordinary citizen living in Rome, you had like a shitty apartment, you know, it wasn't much there, it wasn't much to it, but you barely were in it, you know, you went there to sleep, and but most of your time was spent outdoors, you know, kibitzing with the neighbors and doing your job and and going to the games and getting a bath and, you know, uh, experiencing a kind of communal living there in Roma. Is one better than the other? I don't know. You know, here in the States, your private domain, you know, your man's home is his castle, has taken precedence over beautifying the town square. I don't know that it's better, you know? There is something about just... Being in a place of beauty that all can experience, that does something to the soul, I think. It elevates the soul. No wonder you got, you know, these great orators, these great poets, these great playwrights. 
in Roman times, you know? Just elevate the, the philosophers hanging out, philosophizing, because it, because it was just a more communal experience. You know, for an introvert like me, maybe that wouldn't be so good. You'd be like, geez, I just want to lay in bed all day. But bed sucks. I don't know. But it, it did feel like, oh, this is just a, a slightly different way to live. Or maybe an entirely different way to live among a recognizable people. Because that's the other thing that's startling is how recognizable they are. Like you go to Pompeii and you're walking through the streets and they're like, and you know, the, the, our guide is like, oh, and this is where, you know, you would just get soup. You know, this is like the fast food place where, you know, you're, you're, you're busy during the day and then you just come here and you go to the soup Nazi, he gives you some soup and some bread and you're like, all right, thanks. Thanks, uh, you know, Bruno, I'll see you tomorrow. It's just very recognizable. And you realize, yeah, we're just the same people that we were then. And you see these, um, you know, these people walking down the street in modern day Rome, and they're just recognizable as Romans, you know, of 2,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago. You just see it in their faces. You see the history. It's just a whole different scale of time than we have here, obviously. And, but you feel it really intimate. I felt it really intimately and personally. Now, of course, the city is lousy with Americans. Everywhere you go, there's just Americans. And uh, that kind of spoiled it a little bit because you're like, ah, I just want to get away from these people. But, but man, oh, man, just it's really something. You may keep them the whole night, uh, the thing, treachery and violence, uh, spears pointed at both ends. They wound those who resort to them worse than their enemies. Treachery and violence are a just return for treachery and violence, cried Hindley. Mrs. Heathcliff, I'll ask you to do nothing but sit still and be dumb. Tell me now, can you? I'm sure you would have as much pleasure as I in witnessing the conclusion of the friend's existence. He'll be your death unless you overreach him, and he'll be my ruin. Damn the hellish villain. He knocks at the door as if he were master here already. Promise to hold your tongue, and before that clock strikes, it wants three minutes of one. You're a free woman. So I don't know if Hindley's saying, I'm about to, I'm going to kill him. I'm about to, you know, because you, you remember Hindley had said when she came to the house, hey, do me a favor, lock the door at night when you're with Heathcliff, because if you don't, I'm going to come in and I'm going to shoot him in the head. And I'll probably end up shooting you too. Hindley has had murder on his mind now for years. And now it seems like he's about to spring the trap. Now it seems like he is set on executing his designs and executing Heathcliff as well. Will he do it? I don't know. Let's find out next time on another scintillating episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you arrivederci. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black and get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.